0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 305. Isn't that Burma army annihilated yet? Last time, after recovering from his mistake of sending off the brigade that was protecting his latest river crossing, only to have the security unit of the 1st Burma Division pay for this with lives lost, General Slim and his Burma Corps moved on now ready to cross the Chinwen River again, but further upstream. This would have them departing Xueqin on the east bank and resuming their march once they reached Kalewa on the west bank. Problem was, as the process had been slowed, the Japanese were able to catch up. So on the morning of May 10th, just as Slim stepped onto the jetty at Xueqin, the enemy opened up with its latest attack, with a large force coming from multiple directions. Not that Slim knew this yet. He was just trying to survive the opening shots of this latest battle. After walking away from the laughing Gurkha Major, Slim found Brigadier Roger Eakin's brigade headquarters. To be sure, the man and his staff were on high alert, but fortunately not panicking. Slim had learned a long time ago, panicking does no good. Egan, of the 46th Brigade, was able to give his commanding officer two pieces of information, one bad and one not quite so bad. First, it was obvious that a large enemy force, some several hundred strong, had breached the outer perimeter at the edge of the basin. Next, the enemy must have done their own reconnaissance because their attack was focused on the Indian battalion to the south closest to the jetty. If they went down, the game was up. Fortunately, the fighting there, like here at headquarters, was anxious, but panic had not taken over. The truth of the situation, not that Slim would learn this for a few more days, was that the previous day, May 9th, about 700 enemy troops, with guns and mules and mortars, were brought upriver and offloaded about eight miles south of Yin then those river craft went back down river to grab more troops and offloaded them as well at the same place. Also, a third large force was dropped off on the west bank about 6 miles to the south. The enemy concentration on the east bank must have sent out scouts because when they moved, they came inland a bit, going around the forces guarding the river boom that Slim and his had placed much hope in. However, as Slim's defensive position was layered, this incursion force still ran into his Gurkha commandos, closer to the jetty. This was how Slim always set up his defense when he could. Layers staggered, having men in between his main force and the enemy. Yet the next two pieces of information did not please the commander. But in war, things hardly ever go to plan. First, the commando's radio obviously wasn't functioning properly because no alarm had been sent. Next, the commando leader, on his own, decided not to engage this larger force and instead started retreating back to the jetty, but always keeping his unit in between the crossing and the Japanese. But as it was now dark, being the night of May 9th, 10th, the Gurkhas got separated and their presence became known to the enemy. Being chased and further separated, the Gurkhas did their best to get back to the crossing on their own. As for the commando leader, he was cornered, and so jumped into the Chinwin, but the current was too much for him. The man was never seen again. Either way, this large enemy force was now attacking from the south, but for the moment being held up. As the attack went on, some of the Gurkhas arrived in ones and twos. There was nothing for it now but to put them into the line, to hold back the enemy. Just as Slim and Eakin began to relax, the attack to the south was intense, but being contained, another attack came, this one from the east. Clearly, again, Slim could not know this yet, but some of those 1,000-man enemy force had swung wider to the south, to the point of coming in, hopefully undetected, from the east. In a short time, it was clear that the southern attack had been a diversion, for the amount of shot and mortar explosions coming from the east exceeded that of the south. Yet the Gurkhas and the Indian troops to the east held back the larger force. And perhaps for this very reason, the enemy seemed content to stay back. Yet their assault now transformed into a massive mortar attack, with shells landing every few seconds. The Japanese shells, roughly equivalent to the British 3-inch guns, certainly did damage and killed men within the basin. But had they been able to bring greater firepower to bear, Slim's troops would truly have been in for it. And yet, it seems that this second attack from the East that morphed into a mortar attack itself, was a feint of sorts. As the explosions rained down and the defenders kept their heads down, some enemy forces were able to get past the line protecting the eastern edge of the basin. Soon the eastern wall belonged to the enemy. If panic had yet to creep into Eakin's headquarters and the soldiers' heads, now seemed a good time for it which is when Slim's previous tormentor, the Gurkha Subador Major, and his fellow Gurkhas and Indians around him, showed their contempt for living. Just as the enemy seemed about to start climbing down the East Ridge, these experienced, and one may add, crazy soldiers of the first Ninth Royal Jats and a company of the first Seventh Gurkhas ran towards the height and then began to run up it, all the while shooting. From what Slim could see, his mind boggled at the idea of even getting up the side of the slope, much less running up it, much less fighting, as one did so. But it seemed that, as some of the defenders continued moving up, many found excellent hiding spots to, in their turn, shoot at the enemy at close range as they came by. With this, the enemy's advance was stopped. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house, in getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination, with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. But the British-led troops weren't the only ones to take advantage of the confused counterattack. By the time most of the shooting was over on the eastern height, several Japanese snipers had gotten into a closer position. They spent the rest of the day making life hell, for those in the basin. Unfortunately, the snipers were much better shots than the regular troops, who had already earned the disdain of the subcontinental troops. The Indians guessed that, as the Japanese preferred to silently attack at night, their shooting accuracy was of secondary importance. Of course, it was those very night attacks that went a long way to explaining how the Imperial Japanese Navy had scored so many victories thus far. After the Eastern attack was checked, but the snipers were forcing the defenders to keep their heads down, the attackers then brought up a small artillery piece. Clearly, the Japanese had figured out that their mortars, though menacing, were not getting the job done. More firepower was needed. However, again, the Indians were all over it. One Indian light anti-aircraft battery turned its Beaufort's gun at this latest attack, and suddenly there was a duel, the more powerful but slower field piece hoping to land a shell close enough to take out the Indian battery. Meanwhile, the Indians, with more accuracy and being able to send up more metal within a shorter amount of time, lit up the gun and the crew around it. In seconds, only silence emanated from this new threat on the hill. And with this silent, the Japanese planes could be heard overhead. Yet the defenders were safe, as the pilots could not discern their own from the enemy. Still, a few daring Japanese pilots tried as they came in close. Again, the men of the 3rd Indian Light Anti-Aircraft Battery focused on the planes brave enough to come so low and they opened up. Within seconds, those self-same planes were climbing as fast as they could, with their craft swerving violently from one side to the other, dodging the shells rushing up at them. As the eastern attack was the one more recently checked, Slim went back to Eakin's headquarters to try to make contact with Brigadier David Punch Cowan and the 48th Brigade to the south. Through tank radios, Slim found out that the 48th was on the move, heading back to the jetty. As for speaking directly to Cowan, the commander of the 17th Indian Infantry Division, that was not possible at the moment. Such was their communications. With this information, or lack thereof, Slim's eyes went back to the jetty. At the moment, there was a steamer there, and soon Slim heard that the crew wanted to get out of there. It was only the vessel's captain who denied the premature launch. Then again, it could have been that, as 7th Armor Brigade was currently loading their 25-pounders aboard, and others were standing around with rifles, the crew, though scared, had little choice but to remain. The guns weighed 1,633 kilograms, or just under 4,000 pounds. So, their muscles and nerves were already strained. The problem now, as Slim saw it, was that the guns were being fired right up to the point they were being loaded onto the ship, which slowed down the process a bit. Next, wounded, though there were not a lot of them still in the basin, were slowly coming down the path, either seeking medical attention or getting the barest of it before getting on the steamer. Only as the steamer was about to leave, with Slim seeing a little room left, allowed some 100 refugees to rush on board. It wasn't nearly enough, but it was the best he could do. Just then, another attack came. This one started already within the basin. Obviously, more enemy troops snuck through and now opened up their latest offensive. The problem was, due to the proximity of this attack, they were already close to the track that was needed by all, to get to the jetty. As it was clearly time for another miracle, Slim was given one, in the form of Staff Officer Patterson Knight. This man, decked out in his British riding pants or jodhpurs, had been at Shegwin for the last few days. Probably tired of it all, he grabbed up a Tommy gun with a few men and, without a word, started walking towards this latest attack. An hour later, he came back put down the tommy gun, replacing it with a rifle, and said to Slim, The little yellow baskets are a bit further off now. The embarkation process had just been given a reprieve. Later, Punch Cowan arrived and took command from Eakin, and his first action was to ask Slim to leave. Losing a corps commander would be a blot on anyone's record. Slim agreed and went back to Kalewa on his launch to try to entice more steam captains to come south and pick up his men. And it was his direct request that caused three captains to agree to head back south one more time. As the vessels made their way, the firefight was still raging, so the captains agreed to only pull up to a few hundred yards away from the jetty, as they were now under a cliff, the ships were relatively safe from mortar shells. And it was this sortie that would be the last. For one, the last of the wounded and administrative units were brought on board, and two, the enemy was just too close. To gather together after this point, and thus making themselves tempting targets, was inviting almost certain death. Third, all the captains adamantly refused to come south for another go. Whatever else was going to get out of the basin had to be able to walk or be carried by the scraggly soldiers. Clearly, with the enemy so close, the embarkation process ground to a halt. To alter this, Cowan had earlier sent the 7th Gurkhas to dislodge an enemy unit that was using a height just outside the basin to lob shells and to steer their comrades were coming inside. This attack had set out at 2 p.m. on that day of May 10th, but they failed. Approaching the enemy guns was just not possible. Seeing this, Cowan, who had Slim's authority, made the ultimate decision. It was time to go. As such, rear guards were set up covering the track that led to the jetty. Further, the artillery crews were ordered to go all out, As this last great barrage got underway, all those not needed in securing the area were ordered to start walking up the riverside path. They would get help crossing over there. By 8 p.m., all were gone, except for the artillery crews, the Gurkhas and Indians keeping the enemy to the east in place, and the tanks with their crews. At that moment, all guns... Three BORFORs were ordered to open up and keep firing until all their shells were gone. For the next 20 minutes, it was the Japanese troops on the eastern edge that had to keep their heads down. During this constant barrage, the last of Slim's defenders climbed down from the bank and walked past the rear guard. With the last of the troops walking out of the basin, the remaining artillery pieces were destroyed along with them the remaining vehicles and all the tanks that had made it thus far for the tank crews, yes, the beasts were barely functioning and out of date, but they had saved them more times than could be remembered. When Slim heard of this, he wasn't surprised, as it had been his prediction. However, it was an insult added to the injury of defeat. With death Destruction and fire raging throughout the basin, the last of the defenders, the 1-9th Jats and the 7th Gurkha, started up the river path, carrying what was possible. Fortunately, the Japanese did not pursue, as their casualties were higher than Cowan could know. Besides which, the enemy stayed behind in the basin to see if the Allied troops left anything of value. However, all they found were... Explosions, as the fires set, finally reached the stores of ammo left behind. Which meant that, though Slim could not know this at the time, the last battle of the retreat from Burma had just taken place. To be sure, there would still be fear. Fear of malaria, the enemy, monsoons, and hunger. But the fighting was over. It was time to look to the future and, of one day returning, properly prepared to take back the country. But again, not that any of the retreating defenders, nor the victorious Japanese, could know this. Seeing that the enemy was not going to pursue them, indeed the Jats and Gurkhas had stayed along the river path until 4 a.m. to make sure they were not followed. Slim had the 48th Brigade, with some other units, sent upriver, this, the steam captains would do for about 90 kilometers until they reached Setong on the west bank. From there, they would walk about 25 kilometers to reach Temu. If their travel was unhindered by the enemy, then it would be safe for the rest of Burma Corps, as they would be walking the 90 miles northwest from Kalewa through the Kaba Valley, locally known as Death Valley, to Temu. Alas, some of those units retreating, like the 2nd Burma Brigade, would run into armed Burmese, allied with the Japanese. However, as the locals were not well trained, and the Japanese were not pursuing this far north, the 2nd Burma took their frustrations out on those who tried to ambush them, and then took their carts to transport the sick and wounded. As Slim and his plotted on, As they only had 50 trucks left, most of the wounded had to walk. As for the majority of the soldiers, including Slim himself, their shoes had almost disappeared, as had their uniforms, and practically everyone had beards, as shaving kits had long been discarded. Slim had begun to grow his own beard for camaraderie, but as it was coming out all white, he quickly made it disappear not wanting to appear before his men as Santa Claus. As for the Chinese 5th Army, protected by General Sun's 38th Division, it continued north until it made good its escape into India, through the Hukong Valley, about 300 kilometers north by northeast of Kalewa. As the 22nd and 96th Divisions had suffered greatly at the hands of the Japanese, these Chinese troops were not overly worried about observing niceties. They took trains from locals, seized food, and other supplies to guarantee their survival. General Stilwell tried to control them for a while, but then gave up. The American general stayed in Shwebo until May 1st, then took the train to Wuntho, due north for about 100 miles. From there, he had it in mind to make for Michinar, another 100 miles or so, to the north, and then fly out of the country. Yet, it was at Wuntho that he found out the enemy would be at Michinar before he would. So, the plan was changed to drive west, by car, as far as he could, and then to walk the rest of the way, which is a story unto itself. Getting back to the Chinese 30th Division, as it was providing cover for the demoralized 5th Army, General Sun and his were on a train from Wuntho to Michinar, following General Stilwell. However, Sun was told the same as the American general, that the Japanese would be there before he could. Turning around, the 38th Division went back to Wuntho, or tried to, as it was now occupied by the enemy. Putting his redoubtable 113th Regiment, which had given the Japanese 33rd Division a bloody nose at Yan'inyong, Sun pointed the rest of his men west and moved out. Covering the 80-odd kilometers to the Chinwin River, that's when Sun and his ran into another Japanese force on May 14th, coming up the river, hoping to block the enemy's retreat. Incredibly, General Sun, on his own, used his troops to hold back the enemy, while the majority of them crossed the Chinwin, and then withdrew from that battle, a true test of a general, and then he and his reached Imphal, India, on May 24th. Sadly, the gallant 113th Regiment had been cut off from following, and was practically destroyed. Still, What men Sun had with him were in much better shape than all the other Chinese formations. Getting back to General Slim, it was on May 10th that the Japanese had attacked his jetty and troops while waiting to cross. As that fighting had not ended in a victory, but rather a costly stalemate, the Allied troops started retreating that same day. And two days later, May 12th, the rear guard was still leaving Kalewa when the monsoons finally arrived. To be sure, there had already been a few rainstorms, but if any of the retreating men were confused about did that mean the monsoons were here, all confusion was cleared up on May 12th, as what came down on them was nothing like they had ever experienced before, and it never stopped. Still, always moving, trying to keep distance between themselves and the enemy, the Indians, British, and Gurkhas were soaked, shivering and hungry, with many running a fever. But they kept putting one foot into the inches-deep mud after another. There was nothing else for it. The good news, again, only figured out with hindsight, was that the rains meant the enemy had, more or less, given up the chase. Even better, as the clouds were now low enough to cover the hills that Slim and his men were going up and down on, even the enemy air attacks were a thing of the past. However, the trek was now littered with the corpses of refugee bodies, as the Burmese saw these civilians as traitors. Little mercy was shown. This was also evidenced by the increasing number of bodies that had to be navigated past in the increasingly swift waterways. Which probably explains that, up to this point, the overall health of the Gurkhas, Sikhs, and Pujabas, along with the 500 or so local Karens, Chins, and Kachins, had been better than expected. But now, with the bodies and whatever viruses they were carrying so nearby, the men began to fall out of line either being dragged or carried by their mates, or loaded onto the few remaining trucks. It was normally the former, as the vehicles were already past full. When the line of retreat was just south of Tammu, itself located on the Burmese-Indian border, the head of the line was met by an Indian mechanical transport company. Finally, a chance to get off their feet. But when the drivers were told of some of the hair-raising stories Burma Corps had been through, just to get to this point, many of the drivers either ran into the jungle or drove their trucks into the jungle and hid. Slim's answer to this was equally direct. He put a man from 7th Armor Brigade and his gun with each driver just to make sure the Indians went where they were supposed to. The wounded and sick were loaded up first, and when the trucks came back with their armed security, of course the gun was pointed at the driver and not out the window, only then were entire units allowed to ride. As the rear guard marched into Imphal, Slim was there to watch them go by. He and his had lived in hell for a time that seemed to stretch on forever. And as the men could not remember a time when they were not running from the Japanese, now their heads were full of images of rain, ever pouring rain. The Japanese were forgotten. As Slim later recorded as he watched his men go by, still carrying their weapons, still marching in their ranks, they might look like scarecrows, but they looked like soldiers, too. The Burma Army had just endured the longest retreat in the history of the British Army, some 1,100 miles, or 1,770 kilometers. All the while, outnumbered, little to no air cover, many of the men barely trained through thick jungles, and never knowing when the next attack would come. But Slim's skeletons now knew they could beat the Japanese. Which was true enough. Also true was that Burma Corps' ordeal was not over yet. Once they arrived in Imphal, they were unceremoniously told that they would be providing their own protection while they rested and regrouped. The only force sent to protect them was a single infantry brigade of raw recruits. The Burma Corps even in their current condition, could have fought this brigade and the Japanese at the same time. It's amazing that Slim's skeletons with beards and rags for clothes did not start shooting at the newly arrived officers themselves. Yet divisional commanders Scott and Cowan, who may have wanted to do some shooting of their own, stepped in between the two and reminded Burma Corps that they were still soldiers. When Slim heard about this, he knew the officers who received his men had made a mistake. Later, he would try to make up for it by writing this in his memoir. How much wiser was the treatment of the troops who escaped from Dunkirk? Their hardihood in the face of great material odds was generously recognized. Their courage in retreat and defeat acclaimed. At once, they were received as if they had won a great victory. Not suffered a disaster. My men had endured a longer ordeal with at least equal courage. They deserved an equal welcome. But the worst part of all was that Bermacore was now not housed in buildings to endure the monsoons, but rather pointed to different parts of the jungle to make camp on various hillsides. Further, there were no stockpiles of food or blankets, tents, or new uniforms. Which is when self-designated morale officer, Brigadier Henry L. Taffy Davies, one of Slim's staff officers, who would soon be made Major General, commander of 25th Indian Division, strolled up and said, the slogan in India seems to be, isn't that Burma army annihilated yet?